Dorothy Dandridge tragically dies at age 42 and endures more in her last six years of life than anyone ever should. But the amazing strides she made with her career on screen are still felt and appreciated today. It's Dorothy's last years and 1958's Tamango. I'm Shannon. Thank you for listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. 1958's Tamango would be one of Dorothy Dandridge's last films. Controversial for its time because of the interracial romance and on-screen kiss between Dorothy and her co-star, Kerr Jurgens, the film would have a delayed and very limited release in the United States. Though Dorothy would deliver yet another beautiful performance, proving once again that she was an actress of considerable range, Tamango was in many ways indicative of her descent from the great stardom and acclaim she'd garnered with Carmen Jones and her Oscar nomination. Only six years after the release of Tamango in the U.S., Dorothy Dandridge would be found dead in her apartment. She was only 42 years old. Dottie's last years would unfortunately be full of tragedy. An abusive marriage to a husband who used Dorothy for her fame and money a career decline that her several comeback attempts couldn't reverse, the disappearance of Dorothy's sister Vivian, bankruptcy, pill and alcohol addiction, and the confinement of her daughter Lynn to a state institution would overwhelm this woman who'd always been a survivor. The conversions of all these tragedies would lead Dorothy to feel, in her own words, very, very tired. I'll start with the plot of Tamango, then cover Dorothy's last years. Set in 1820 after France abolished slavery at home and in its colonies, the film begins off the coast of New Guinea. Renegade Captain Riker, Kerr Jurgens, has just purchased a large number of slaves from a local chief. The slaves board Riker's ship for a long voyage to Cuba, where Riker plans to sell them. But it quickly becomes apparent that it won't be an easy voyage. This is a spirited group, many of whom refuse to accept their new status as slaves and one youth in particular, who Riker knows will sell for a very good price in Cuba, due to his handsome face, health, and strength, is the clear leader of the dissenters. His name is Tamango. Tamango, Alex Crisa, was a warrior before he was captured and sold to Riker, and his fighting spirit will stay with him throughout the voyage, despite the warnings of Aisha, Dorothy Dandridge, Riker's slave and mistress. Aisha tells Tamango at the end of his first punishment for attempting to start a revolt that, quote, a slave can never fight back, and the sooner you learn that, the better, unquote. It's clear that at one point, Aisha shared Tamango's fighting spirit, but years of slavery and sexual abuse by her masters have broken that spirit. Still, Tamango won't listen, and he spits in Aisha's face before calling her white man's trash. Aisha doesn't belong to the white man's world or that of the slaves. And in this moment, as she reels from Tamango's cruel words, we know that before the end of the film, she'll have to choose where her allegiance lies. One night during a storm, a particularly cruel man on Riker's crew goes below deck among the slaves. 
In the midst of the tossing of the storm, he discovers the knife that Tamago snuck down to the slave quarters to secretly file through the chains that bind him and the other slaves. Riker's man picks a fight with one of Tamango's friends, and Tamango comes to his defense. The fight escalates, and Tamango kills Riker's man. With nowhere to hide the body, the slaves will undoubtedly be punished when the body is found by the white crew. But Aisha tells Tamango of a loose floorboard they can hide the body under. Riker will think his man fell overboard during the storm. It's a solidarity-building experience for the slaves, and Aisha's help gives Tamango hope that she'll help them get the key needed to access Riker's guns, an element necessary to the success of their revolt. Riker and Aisha have a complicated relationship. Though he literally owns her, there seems to be at least some element of love and companionship, more than just physical relations, between the two. Riker can sense that Aisha has become sensitive to the situation of the slaves. He also senses a revolt coming. When Aisha will not confess to him what she knows of Tamango's plan, Riker is hurt and sends her down to live among the slaves. This confirms for Aisha that Riker will never marry her, no matter how deep his feelings for her are. The revolt moves forward. Tamango and his men are able to get a fair amount of guns, even though Aisha, who, after her brief time among the slaves, is brought back up to Riker's quarters, can't bring herself to help them get the key. It seems at first that Tamango's revolt will be successful, but things turn against the slaves, and they must retreat below deck to avoid the fire of Riker's men. At this point, Tamango and his people are effectively sitting ducks. But they've got one bargaining ship, Aisha, who they've captured and taken below deck to slave quarters with them. Tamango's revolt still has a chance at success if Riker's love for Aisha is stronger than his fear of what the slaves will do if the revolt is successful. It's a stalemate between the white crew above deck and the slaves below until Riker's men convince him that this is a them-or-us situation. If Riker doesn't kill the slaves, sacrificing Aisha in the process, the slaves will kill the crew. Riker reluctantly loads a cannon with grapeshot and shoots it below deck. Just before the explosion, the slaves can sense the end is near, and Tamango tells Aisha she's free to return above deck and live if she desires. Aisha begins to make her way above deck, but is overcome with the emotion of the song the slaves sing as they bravely await their end. Aisha chooses to stay with the slaves below deck. She's finally found the sense of camaraderie and belonging she's longed for. Aisha joins in singing the haunting tune just before the cannon booms. The singing immediately stops. All is quiet below deck. Aisha, Tamango, and his people have just made the ultimate sacrifice for freedom, but it's a victorious death, for as Tamango tells his friends just before they sacrifice their lives, quote, Even if we die, we'll win, because they can sell living men, but you can't sell dead ones. Me? They won't sell me. Unquote. And that's the end of the film. If you remember from my podcast on Carmen Jones, in 1955, after the great success of Carmen Jones, 20th Century Fox head Daryl Zanuck offered Dorothy Dandridge a dream three-year contract. She'd earned $75,000 a film to start, 
and $125,000 by the final film. As a non-exclusive contract, Dorothy could continue with her nightclub engagements or even make films at other studios if she desired. And perhaps best of all, the contract guaranteed that her name would appear above the title of each film she made for Zanuck. It was an unprecedented contract for an African-American star. Dorothy interpreted the contract to mean that she'd be playing leading roles, and the roles she'd be offered would be African-American characters. After proving herself more than capable of carrying a film with her performance in Carmen Jones and earning an Oscar nomination for Best Actress, Dorothy's interpretation of the contract seemed both warranted and logical. But Daryl Zanuck had other ideas. Zanuck wasn't necessarily against Dottie playing African-American leading roles. He just wasn't going to go out of his way to search for or create these types of vehicles for her. In Zanuck's mind, Dorothy's new contract could be satisfied by offering her feature roles as various quote-unquote exotic beauties. These roles had previously been played by white actresses, so this was still new ground Zanuck was breaking. But can you imagine how Dorothy must have felt when she realized that this was what he had in mind for her career? How could she not be terribly disappointed? Worse still, the first exotic beauty role Zanuck offered Dorothy after Carmen Jones was as an Asian concubine slave in The King and I. While Dorothy chafed at being offered the role of a slave, Otto Priminger, not just Dorothy's clandestine romance at this point, but also the guiding force of her career, advised Dorothy to turn the role down. As Otto saw it, Dorothy should accept nothing less than the best, and a feature role in a film, no matter how prestigious, just didn't cut it. After debating back and forth with herself on the issue, Dorothy ultimately decided to trust Otto. She turned down the role. It was a decision she came to regret. As Dorothy wrote in her autobiography, quote, It was a role I should have played. I now believe my decline may have dated from that decision. Artistically, I started going downhill from that moment. My decision not to play the role upset my contract. There's a subtle line you have to walk in business relations. Make one wrong move and you can be sent spinning in wrong directions for a long time thereafter, even forever after. With that decision and with the steps that followed, I upset several years of work. Those were the years when I should have been playing in one big picture after another, whether starring or secondary roles, but I should have been performing regularly." Unquote. It would be a full three years between Carmen Jones and Dorothy's next film role in 1957's Island in the Sun. In those three years, it was back to the nightclubs or saloons, as Dorothy called the club scene she so hated. There would still be the Oscar nomination, the Cannes Film Festival, and her belief that the relationship with Otto Priminger was on the road to marriage to distract Dorothy from the disappointing turn her film career had taken. But it wouldn't be much longer before Dottie came to believe that the high point of her career, Carmen Jones, was behind her. The dizzying degree of Dottie's stardom in these years directly following the success of Carmen Jones had lasting consequences one of which was the beginning of Dorothy's use of prescription pills. Sister Vivian would say that Dorothy's pill habit began at the time of her Oscar nomination, that the pills helped Dorothy deal with the anxieties that came with this great achievement. Dottie soon became reliant on Milltown, a tranquilizer 
to help her cope with the growing anxieties of superstardom. And then, not long after the 1955 Oscars, during Dorothy's singing engagement at the Empire Room in New York City's Waldorf Astoria, she and Vivian had an argument over money, possibly about a loan Vivian wished to take from Dottie. The argument unfortunately led to an estrangement between the two sisters, and Dorothy lost her closest confidant. Vivian would quite literally disappear from her life. At one point, Dottie even hired a private detective to find her sister, but Vivian, living under various aliases and in a few different countries over the years, couldn't be found. Dorothy tragically commented on her sister's disappearance in her autobiography, quote, I had a heartache over my sister Vivian. She'd been married twice and each marriage had failed. At the time of the Carmen Jones premiere, she was in New York with me, but shortly after that, I never heard from her again. The last I heard, she was in southern France. I phoned, wrote, reached people who knew her. She was nowhere. I've not heard from her yet. Nobody has." Unquote. Dorothy would never see her sister again. According to Dorothy's good friend and former sister-in-law, Jerry Nicholas Branton, next to Lynn, Losing Vivian was the other great tragedy of Dottie's life. By the fall of 1956, when Dorothy signed on to star in Tamango, she was even more dependent on prescription pills and therapy. During this period, she'd meet with her therapist upwards of five times a week to cope with the disappointing path her career had taken. On top of the career despondency, Dorothy realized her relationship with Otto Preminger would not end in marriage. The realization was yet another devastating blow for Dorothy. Quote, I added a new dimension of failure when I grasped that Otto was yet another confrontation with a white man who would not follow through. Unquote. The man who had molded her stardom with Carmen Jones, who Dottie trusted to guide her career, who, quote, put champagne into her life, unquote, by exhorting Dorothy to accept nothing but the best, wouldn't give her the marriage and home life she so craved. Surprisingly, given the significance of their relationship and Dottie's life, Preminger's mention of Dorothy in his autobiography is nothing more than an actress he made two films with, and maybe saw a couple of times through the years. By the time Tamango began filming in Nice during the spring of 1957, Dorothy had lost her enthusiasm for the project. Though a slave role, she initially saw great opportunity for character development. But now, the only excitement she could find for the film was completely practical. Quote, the picture ceased to interest me, but it had to be made. I'd be able to get out of saloon singing forever, I told myself. Unquote. To compound matters, while sailing to France to begin filming, Dorothy read the recently revised script, only to find that it was very different from the one she'd approved. Now, the focus of the film was the slave-master romance, which Dottie believed cheapened the story and took attention away from the slave revolt. Ultimately, she used her star power to get the script revised yet again, putting the focus back on the revolt. The revised script, lavish attention from the European press, and a brief romance with co-star Kurt Jurgens were just what Dorothy needed at the time. She received the full star treatment during filming of Tamango, including a chauffeur, maid, hairdresser, and $125,000 in compensation for her work on the film. Dottie's performance as Aishe 
so different from any character she had ever portrayed, underscored yet again the great range Dorothy possessed as an actress. We can feel Aisha's longing to fit in with one of the two worlds she's stuck between. We sympathize with Aisha's once strong but now broken spirit that has weathered so much abuse over the years as she's been sold from one master to another. Though Tamango would be a great success in Europe, the interracial love scenes would prove too daring for American film distributors, and Tamango would not be shown in the U.S. until August of 1959, and then only in very limited release. It's a shame more audiences and those in positions of power in Hollywood didn't see Dorothy's performance in Tamango. The film would unfortunately do very little for her career. Carmen Jones' co-star Brock Peters would even say that he believed the film was indicative of the downward projection Dottie's career was now on. Quote, When she did that one, I knew she was going down. Unquote. By the U.S. release of Tomongo, Dorothy's personal life had also reached new lows as she tried to make her second marriage work. Dorothy met Jack Dennison, the white man she'd marry in 1959, back in 1955 while performing at the Riviera in Las Vegas, where Dennison was maitre d'. Dennison would spend a good deal of time trying to convince Dorothy that he was much more than a maitre d', that he held interests in various Vegas casinos and had tons of money stashed away. In an interview with Jet before their marriage, Dennison even flat out lied, calling himself the vice president of the Riviera when he and Dorothy met. It was a position he never held anywhere and was indicative of the other lies he'd tell Dorothy throughout their courtship and marriage. Dennison took advantage of Dorothy's weakened emotional state after her breakup with Otto Priminger to insert himself into her life. Depressed over her career, Dottie eventually convinced herself that Dennison could provide her with a steady home life she craved and the financial stability that would allow her to work only if she desired. Dottie's friends couldn't understand her interest and the growing seriousness of her relationship with Dennison. Gerald Mayer, Dorothy's former romance and director of Bright Road, would describe Jack Dennison as, quote, almost a cliche of a slick, smooth maitre d' who'd smile a lot and would say complimentary, meaningless things. There was something really not likable about him, despite his being good-looking, unquote. Jerry Nicholas Branton believed it was a self-destructive streak in Dottie that led her to marry Jack Dennison on June 23, 1959. Jerry's analysis seems accurate, for Dorothy had to sedate herself to get through the wedding. She even fell asleep at the dinner reception after the ceremony. On their honeymoon, any remaining illusions Dorothy had that Jack Dennison would be a provider were squashed when Dennison informed Dorothy that he was broke. Despite all the savings she'd just invested in the opening of Jack's new restaurant in Hollywood, Dennison told Dorothy that if she didn't give him more money, his place would go under. Dennison also informed Dorothy that he needed her to start performing at his restaurant. So the man Dorothy married not only wanted to take her money, he also wanted to force her back into the life she believed he'd rescue her from, singing in the saloons. Her husband's saloon, no less. Dorothy's name didn't bring the customers into Jack's restaurant. It was a terrible blow to her confidence as a performer and further hurt her reputation in Hollywood. Jack's restaurant went under and Dorothy's pill and alcohol cycle worsened. Only now she had a husband to support and his debts to pay. 
when Dennison became habitually abusive, Dorothy finally filed for divorce in 1962. It seems impossible, but the blows to Dorothy Dandridge kept coming after her divorce from Jack Dennison. Having sunk all her savings into Jack's restaurant, Dorothy next discovered that the investments she'd planned to retire on were all a big scam. Jerry Rosenthal and Sam Norton, the same attorneys who'd swindled Doris Day out of her lifelong earnings with her fraudulent oil wealth scheme, did the same thing to Dorothy Dandridge. Dorothy estimated that she lost $150,000 in bad investments with Rosenthal and Norton, about the equivalent of $1.3 million in 2020. Then, the government claimed Dorothy owed back taxes. Then, Dorothy's home was foreclosed on after she got too far behind on mortgage payments. In March of 1963, Dorothy filed for bankruptcy. Finally, the whole world tumbled around my head, as Dorothy would write in her autobiography, when Helen Calhoun, the woman who'd cared for Dorothy's daughter Lynn over the past decade, informed Dorothy the day after bankruptcy court that Lynn would be returned to her. After 10 years of never missing a payment, two missed payments was all it took. Dorothy's worst fear came true when Lynn, now age 19, was ruled a danger to herself and others by the state of California and sent to live at the Camarillo State Hospital, a state psychiatric institution. Dorothy had vowed her daughter would never be put in the state institution, but now she didn't have the means to provide for Lynn's care in any other way. Despite the constant tragedy upon tragedy, Dorothy Dandridge still seemed to have a bit of her fighting spirit left. She picked herself up and tried for yet another career comeback. As Dorothy assessed her financial situation in her autobiography, quote, It was only a million bucks, I told myself, so go get another, unquote. It's possible Dorothy's final try at a career comeback would have been successful, but we'll never know. On September 8, 1965, Dorothy Dandridge was found dead in her apartment by her manager, Earl Mills. She was only 42 years old. Though her death would initially be reported as the result of an embolism in her right foot, brought on by a sprained ankle Dorothy sustained just days before her passing, the LA County Chief Medical Examiner concluded in November of 1965 that the cause of death was an overdose of Tofrenol, a drug used to treat psychiatric depression. An independent team of psychiatrists led an investigation into whether the overdose was suicide or accidental questioning Dottie's friends and family about her emotional health in the days before her death. The results concluded that the overdose was a, quote, probable accident, unquote. Despite the fact that Dorothy left a handwritten note with manager Earl Mills entitled, quote, to whomever discovers me after death, important, unquote, with instructions for what to do with Dorothy's body and money in the case of her death, Mills would insist that Dorothy had too much to look forward to at this time of her promising comeback for her death to have been a suicide. On the day of her death, Dorothy had been preparing for her latest series of nightclub bookings, which Mills insisted she was enthusiastic about. But Dorothy's good friend, Jerry Nicholas Branton, was confident that Dorothy's death was a suicide. Quote, Dorothy had been trying to kill herself for a long time. I know it was a suicide. She'd talked of it many times. I always listen to that when people, from their gut, say, I'm tired. 
It's a different thing than saying, I'm tired or I need some sleep. No, it's, I'm tired of trying. I'm tired of going on. I give up. And that happened with Dottie. Unquote. In my humble opinion, Jerry Nicholas Branton was the best friend Dorothy Dandridge ever had. No one, with perhaps the exception of Sister Vivian, knew Dottie better. I trust, however sadly, Jerry's analysis of Dorothy's death. The life of Dorothy Dandridge was full of the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. As a talented and beautiful African-American woman during one of Hollywood's most restrictive eras, Dorothy broke through the prejudice and racism of the time as best she could. She became the first female African-American movie star, proving that black actresses could and should be in leading film roles. Black actresses today continue to benefit from and expound upon Dorothy's trailblazing path. Towards the end of her life, Dorothy became involved in the civil rights movement, even speaking at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights rally at Wrigley Field in May of 1963. If Dorothy had stayed with us longer, I have no doubt she would have continued making great contributions to the civil rights movement. While it's still an imperfect world we live in, Dorothy Dandridge, through her beautiful and nuanced screen performances, her drive to make it as a serious dramatic actress in a time of segregation, broke down stereotypes and prejudices, and promoted unity and understanding among all races. That Dorothy's accomplishments on screen had great and lasting influence off-screen can't be denied, and indeed, Dorothy deserves greater appreciation and acknowledgement for these achievements. It's been a complete joy and honor for me to highlight this amazing woman this month. And this closes our beautiful month with Dorothy Dandridge. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macronsandmimi.com. And be sure to join me next week as I introduce our October star of the month, the very English, very talented, gentleman of horror, Peter Cushing.